0: A few years ago, before he took over David Letterman's spot on The Tonight Show, Stephen Colbert, a, a political satirist, interviewed a congressman about various issues on his own program. Now, it just so happened that this particular congressman had co-sponsored a bill to, plus the, to place the Ten Commandments in both the House and the Senate. So the interview went along for a while, and, and eventually, uh, Colbert asked the man, And what are the Ten Commandments? The man said, what, you you want me to name all of them? Yes. So the congressman sat back and thought, do not lie, do not murder, don't steal. Colbert's over there. Well, I can't name them all, the man said. Can you name all the Ten Commandments? I don't share that story to mock the congressman, but to show that even those we would assume are mo- who we would assume are most familiar with the Ten Commandments, say, Christians in particular, often do not know them. Even among Christians who can outline the Decalogue, many still fail to rightly understand its meaning and significance. And so as we prepare to delve into the Decalogue this morning, it's necessary for us to lay some groundwork. First, the ten words are all about God. The Ten Commandments are not designed to give us ten steps to healthier living or to function as the Christian version of an eightfold path. They're not about us helping ourselves, but about revealing our hearts in light of God's heart. They reveal his holy character and teach his people how to live holy lives as his holy nation. Simply put the law tells us how God's people are to faithfully love God and how we faithfully or how we fail to do so. Secondly, the 10 words have never been a means of salvation, but a response to it. God's law is not meant to be a yoke of bondage, but of freedom. The Ten Commandments are given to us not to keep us from enjoying life but to show us how life works best that we might enjoy it to the fullest. The good life is not found in living without restrictions according to the desires of our twisted hearts. The good life is found in living within God's right restrictions, in obedience to his wonderful law. We've said it many times now, freedom is not the absence of restrictions, but finding the right ones. Just like a fish is most free and happy swimming in water, they don't do so well on land after all. So too are we most free and happy when we are living in accord with God's wonderful law those who have put their faith in Christ, affectionately obey God. Because in this, they both demonstrate their love for him and increase their own joy. Each commandment, as you read it, requires loyal love to God. And and it's expressed in a godly behavior that's outlined therein. Each commandment looks at a loyal love for God from a different perspective. One focuses on one kind of behavior produced by love, and another focuses on another kind of loving behavior. You can think of it this way. uh, When I first met my wife, I didn't really know the things that she enjoyed or how she felt loved in a lot of ways. I had had to figure those things out. She'll tell you I've only figured a handful of them out at this point, all right? (laughs) But as I got to know her more and more over time, I figured out new ways that I could express my love for her. Right? I, my wife and I, we love each other and we love our children. And even though it's a duty for us to love one another and our children, it's also a delight. Right? And because it's a delight, most of the time, we don't need to be reminded that we are commanded to care for one another and our children. I mean, we just do it naturally, right? That makes sense. You don't have to tell me to kiss my wife, hug my kids, enjoy a football game, or eat a steak, right? I love to do those things. I'll just do them naturally. Likewise, the duty of loving God is to be a delight. God's law teaches us how we can best love him. And as we grow in our relationship with him, loving him in the way his law requires will become almost second nature. It is helpful, I think, to consider the Ten Commandments in this light, that they are varying perspectives on the whole law of God, and the whole law of God is aimed at teaching us how we might loyally and faithfully love God best. And I'm going to tell you, that's a brilliant idea, which is how you know it's not my own. Right, it's it's from the renowned ethicist John Frame, and I've actually included a diagram that depicts this on the back of your insert. If you want to use it as you follow along throughout the sermon, and his book is called The Doctrine of the Christian Life. It's a giant volume, but if you're into it, uh, it's a it's a good read. Anyhow, the, the two things that I want you to keep in mind as we are examined by the Ten Commandments this morning is that the Ten Commandments reveal God's holy character and our unholy hearts. Secondly, that they are to be kept as a response to receiving God's love and salvation, not as a means of obtaining his love and salvation. Here in Exodus 20 at Mount Sinai, the mountain of God, God is giving his word to his people so that they might know him and live in such a way that it is clear to everyone that they are also known by him. They are to be defined by their relationship with the holy God of the universe. Our main idea this morning is this, that God's law tells his people about him and teaches his people how to live in loyal and loving relationship with him. We're going to do it in two parts, the 10 and the end. Before we get into the text, let's pray together and ask for God's help. Dear Heavenly Father, Pray that you might allow us to be interrogated by the text this morning, that our hearts would come underneath of your word, and that we would give honest answers, an honest evaluation of our own desires, of our own shortcomings, of the repentances that need to take place in our own lives. Father, we pray that as a church, we would be a people that are continually becoming in practice what you've declared us to be in Christ, which is holy. We pray that it would be true of us that we are those who strive for Christ's likeness and that we are bearing the good fruit of repentance, that we are gathering together in order to exhort one another on towards good deeds and towards love, that you might be honored and glorified in our lives. Father, we pray that as we learn to obey these commands and look to the one who keeps them perfectly, that indeed we would be a light unto the nations, that your gospel would cause a flourishing in our community and around the world. Pray that you would be honored in this time together. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. So before we get started, let's set the stage a little bit. Remember, the people and Moses are standing at the foot of the mountain of God, and God is speaking to them directly. In the previous chapter, in 19, we saw Moses go up the mountain, down the mountain, up the mountain, down the mountain, taking God to the people and the people to God. He was working as their mediator. And one of the things we discovered is that God was infinitely holy, and this was not a bubble baths and unicorns kind of interaction. It was scary. Remember verses 16 through 19 in chapter 19. We read this. On the third day when morning came there was thunder and lightning a thick cloud upon the mountain and a loud trumpet sound so that all the people in the camp shuddered then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God and they stood at the foot of the mountain Mount Sinai was completely enveloped in smoke because the Lord came down on it in fire its smoke went up like the smoke of a furnace the whole mountain shook violently As the trumpet sounded and grew louder and louder, Moses spoke to God. And God answered him in thunder. I mean, the scene makes clear the reality of God's holiness and the unholiness of the people. Remember, if they got too close to the mountain, beyond the boundaries that God had set for them, they will die. You could almost picture yourself there with your family and your little ones, if you have little ones, like a toddler like I do, and just going, don't run up to that mountain because it's not going to go well. Trying to hold on to that little family pet that might sprint off and touch the mountain and be killed as a result. The whole encounter is aimed at teaching them about God's holiness, their unholiness, and teaching them that they can only approach God and be in right relationship with God when, by his grace, he brings them to himself by his mediator. I mean, how else can an unclean people approach a holy God? Certainly not on the basis of their own holiness. They understand this before the ten words are even spoken. Right? They know they can enjoy relationship with God only insofar as they trust in his mediator. It's clear they have relationship with God not on the basis of their own actions, but on the basis of God's saving action. I mean, This is the pattern of the gospel. God saves us by his grace into relationship with himself, and then he calls us into obedience. He calls us to live in light of the new identity we have received in Christ. I mean, we saw this in 19 verse 4 last week before God gives a command to the people, before he gives this law to the people, he gives them grace. He says, you have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to me. He's saying, I rescued you, and now in response to that, here's what I want you to do. We're going to see it again this week in verse 2 of chapter 20 before God uh, lays out the Decalogue. He says this, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage or slavery. And the pattern here is that grace comes before law. Position precedes practice. You with me? God does not tell Israel or us that if we keep his law, we will become his people. He doesn't say, if you get your life together, you clean yourself up, then you will be able to approach me. That's not what God says, no. He sets his love on us, makes us his own, and then tells us to live in light of the truth of what he's done, to live in response to his loving and saving action because if we wait until we get ourselves all cleaned up, then we will never come. I mean, you've probably heard, uh, it's a platitude almost now, you've probably heard it many times, the church is not a museum for, for saints, but a hospital for sinners. This is true. Those who are saved in Christ are saved by his grace, not their own work. Grace comes before law. Christian, it is your position in Christ that puts you in right relationship with him. And it is from that holy position that you begin to practice righteousness. Getting the order wrong between acceptance and obedience means that you get the gospel wrong. Works-based salvation says, I obey, I do the things God has told me to do, therefore God will accept me. The gospel of Jesus Christ says, I am accepted by God on the basis of Jesus' work, on my behalf, I put my faith in Jesus Christ, therefore I will obey. I mean, Do you see the difference? The person who believes I obey, therefore I'm accepted, trusts in him or herself. Whereas the person who believes I'm accepted in Christ, therefore I obey, trusts in Christ. I mean, if you get the order wrong here, you miss the gospel. If we misunderstand the commands of God as rungs on a ladder that we can climb in order to arrive at holiness, we will make them smaller so we can keep them. We will become self righteous and we will remain separated from God. I think, sadly, though, as I mentioned earlier, this misunderstanding about God's law is very, very common. And so, to underline how ridiculous it would be to think that we could earn our way to God, we're going to play a game together this morning throughout the sermon. You can see on your insert there, right underneath the outline, there is a funky kind of Microsoft Word drawing. Uh, I'm not much of a graphic designer. But you have two columns there. And what I want you to do on one side of the column is to put a W. And on the other side of the column, you can put an L. They stand for win or loss. And as we work through the commands, what you can do is, if you've kept the command perfectly your whole life, you can put a W in the win column. But if not, you can put an L in the loss column. At the end, we'll, we'll see how we stack up. A quick note, too, I think it's important to realize. Uh, The the Ten Commandments are like major arteries that share the same blood pumped by the same heart. If all the arteries are kept healthy, the blood flows properly, and the heart keeps beating. But if just one of them is fatally severed, blood escapes furiously, and the heart stops beating. I, I don't know anything about medicine. I think that's how it works. If not, someone can correct me afterwards. Let the illustration work for now, though point here is that the Ten Commandments, even though they are distinct, are part of the same system. They're part of the same whole. They form a unity and they share the same heart. Thus to break one of the commandments is to break all of them. James 2:10 through 11 tells us this, right? For whoever keeps the entire law yet fails in one point is guilty of breaking it all. For he who said, "Do not commit adultery also said, "Do not murder." So if you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you are a lawbreaker. So you need a clean sweep, 10 for 10, in order to be considered a law keeper. And if you don't go 10 for 10, it will prove that you are a lawbreaker. And the thing about breaking God's law is that the penalty is always death. I know that seems a little bit harsh But at least consider this. It is the consistent picture of the Bible. It's how we see God's holiness throughout Scripture. Right? In the book of Numbers, right after God is given the command to do no work on the Sabbath, you've got a dude collecting sticks to start a fire. The people are like, hey, this guy's doing some work on the Sabbath, God. What should we do with him? And God says, stone him, picking up some sticks. He dies because he violated a command of God. In the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve are there. They say, Don't eat from the tree of forbidden fruit. And then they take one bite from that delicious forbidden fruit, and it turns to ashes in their mouth. And curse invades everything. All sin is brought into the world because of one bite. Every disease, every famine, natural disaster, and hell itself, because of one bite, one violation of God's holiness. In Genesis 19, as Lot and his wife are exiting Sodom and Gomorrah, as God rains fire down on it, he says, do not look back. And Lot's wife, as they're running away from the city, going away from the city, tries to steal a glance, and she turns to a pillar of salt for one glance. In 2 Samuel, we see a man named Uzzah. Uh, He's following along the Ark of the Covenant where God has chosen to manifest his presence among the Israelites. They're not allowed to touch the thing. That's the law. And somebody trips over a root or something, I don't know, but it starts to sway and looks like it's going to fall. And Uzzah, well-intentioned as can be, says, I'm going to steady this bad boy. And he touches it and he drops dead. He violates God's law and he dies. In the New Testament, Ananias and Sapphira, they exaggerate the amount they have given in offering to the church, and God strikes them dead. Not exactly a good church growth model, right? God is killing people for violating his holiness. His holiness, his purity, his goodness is absolute and perfect. Those who enter his presence cannot do so with sin in their hearts. Lawbreakers cannot enter the presence of God. The prophet Habakkuk said it like this, God is of such purity that he cannot even look at evil. I think too often we think of our sin and the sins of others as not all that bad. I think it's because we have a very human-centered view of it. It doesn't seem all that bad to us. But when you see it in light of a holy God, you recognize how awful it really is. The wickedness of a deed is measured in part by whom that deed is against. J.D. Greer illustrates it this way. If you get mad and you kick a wall in your home, not that big of a deal. Maybe you have some anger issues you need to work out. Maybe you kick it really hard. You'll even have to to fix the wall. It's not, not all that bad. If you turn around and kick the dog, you've done something genuinely bad, right? Something worse. Now, if you're in the grocery store and you find yourself frustrated and you kick the lady next to you in line it's going to get a little bit worse. Maybe some assault charges, maybe some time in prison. Who knows? It's not, not good. But you can see that it's escalating. Now, if you walk into Buckingham Palace and roundhouse kick the queen, like Chuck Norris-style roundhouse kicker in the face, it's going to go really poorly with you, right? You're going to definitely go to jail. You're definitely going to get trumped-up charges. Those guys with the, the funny hats, they're going to beat you with sticks. It's not going to go well. You see, our sin is infinitely wicked Because it is against an infinitely holy God. The punishment of eternity separated from God, underneath his wrath, fits the crime of violating his good and perfect will. So in light of God's holy perfection, and in light of the penalty of sin, we're going to see how we measure up against the ten words of God. Verse 3, commandment 1. talk too much in Sunday school today. My throat's already dry. You shall have no other gods before me. To have kept this commandment means that you have always been entirely loyal to God and served him exclusively with a singular devotion. It means you've never put something or someone else in God's place and that you've never been an atheist, a polytheist, or a pantheist. Can you say I've never loved anything at any time more than God. That God has always been preeminent in my thoughts, actions, and affections. That the things I get most excited about in life are God's word, God's people, and God himself. Can you say I've always been more excited about my relationship with God than a new romance, a new car, a new job, or even just a new series on Netflix? Win or loss. Verse 4, commandment 2. Commands. quick note on the the punishment of the children for the sins of the parents here uh, we don't have time to explore it fully but I think throughout scripture we see God's punishment is giving people over to what they most desire giving them over to their sin and then they reap the consequence of that sin and so when, when he gives people over to their sin and they're experiencing those consequences or those natural results um, calamity follows what we call natural results are just an expression of God's law in operation, punishing breaches of his will. So as long as children persist in sowing the sins learned from their parents, they will reap the harvest of God's just punishment. Lastly, I think it's important to note that this punishment is restricted to those who hate me, those who hate God, and it's meant to be read in contrast with the great blessing of God's obedience and his mercy. If you notice there, uh, that says uh, three, four generations, this is going to fall on them, this punishment, but faithfulness results in thousands of generations of being blessed. We can talk more about that later if you're interested. Um, for now, we'll just say God's holy, he's just, and, and he acts rightly. But in light of commandment two, we're going to paraphrase it this way. Don't have carved images of me, right? That's what God's saying. Don't have images of me shaped by your own hands. So similar to the first commandment, the sin of worshiping a graven image is the sin of worshiping anything of human devising. So any sin that involves following our own purposes instead of God's is false worship. So breaking this command usually looks like you reshaping God in your own image so that you believe wrong things about him because you'd like him to be a different way. Can you say that you've never followed your own purposes and desires instead of God's? Commandment three, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Uh, This command is far more than saying "GD." though just that gets most all of us, I think, right? It's about always using his name with honor and respect. Mis- misusing God's name or taking it in vain also applies to those who call themselves Christians but then live in disobedience and fail to represent him well. Can you say, I've always used God's name with respect? I've never used it as a swear word, and I've always represented him well never calling myself his follower and living in disobedience to his word. Verse 8, command 4. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is the Sabbath day of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work. You, nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your male servant, nor your female servant, nor your cattle, nor the stranger who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested in the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. The Sabbath is the stopping day. It's the day on which one's regular work is to cease for the sake of giving the laborers a break from their daily routine and for the sake of providing a focus on God that is periodically heightened. The the day of rest is given to God's people as a gift so that they might together remember that he is their redeemer and provider. The Sabbath commandment actually demands godly use of our entire calendar. Six days to carry out our work to God's glory and the seventh to worship and rest. So the whole week is given to us to do God's will. Any disobedient or ungodly use of time is a breach of the fourth commandment. Can you say you've always used your time in a godly fashion, always set aside one day a week specifically to worship God with others, that you've never been lazy or guilty of overworking or loss? We kind of have a break in the commandments here. You'll see a shift. The first four hang on the commandment to love God. And what we'll see in the final six is that they hang on the commandment to love God by loving others, right? We'll see that. So command five, honor your father and mother that your days may be long upon the land which the Lord your God has given you. This is the the first commandment with a promise, as Paul calls it, but this promise does not apply to us. Like life in Palestine, it's not for us. That's not a promise. That was specific to Israel. Uh, additionally, even when the promise was for Israel, it was to be read corporately. As God is addressing the people here, he's, he's calling them as one nation, one people. He's saying, all y'all, all right? And so this promise is a corporate one, so that it was quite possible to honor one's parents and still die very young. All right. Old age does, though, have something to do with keeping this commandment. Uh, Douglas Stewart comments, this commandment demands that children take care of their parents in their parents' old age when they are no longer able to work for themselves. I mean it means more than that too though, right? It is primarily referring to the honoring and respecting of the authority God has placed over us in the home narrowly and broadly in every sphere of life. Respect for authority in general and parents in particular, it is a big deal. Right? In Israel, if you don't respect your parents, uh, the punishment could actually be death. Right? We, we read about that in Leviticus 20 and Deuteronomy 21, that you could be stoned for disobeying your parents. I think we would have less unruly teens if that were the case still today. It's intense. Can you say I've always honored, respected, and submitted to every authority in my life at home, at work, at school, at church, in the community? Command six, you shall not murder. Some of y'all are thinking, finally, I got one in the wind column. And I'm going to let you have it for the time being. Same thing with commands. I'm going to let you have that one for a minute. Some of you might have it. It says you shall not commit adultery. We're going to circle back around in, in a second. Command eight. You shall not steal. Can you say you've never taken something that wasn't yours? That you've never taken credit belonging to someone else? Never taken someone else's food? That one would implicate my wife. Never snuck into a concert or done that thing where you pack a bunch of people into the trunk of your car or into the back of your van, cover them with blankets when you're going to the drive-in because you pay per person, and then you all flood out of that thing like a clown car? Have you always been fair in all of your business transactions? Can you say you've never stolen from your employer by stealing looks at social media or taking an extended break? I should point out also that Malachi 3 8 says that the withholding of tithes and offerings, God's due, is stealing. And I think even if we press this idea further, if we look at the command, if we flip it upside down and look at it from a positive perspective, that it means we are to give generously, especially to those in need. Have you ever withheld generosity from someone? who needed it, keeping for yourself that which God has given to you in order to bless someone else? Have you ever withheld your tithes and offerings? Win or loss? Command 9, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Now, I shouldn't even have to go over this one, right? But can you say, I've never lied or slandered another person? I've never exaggerated the truth for my own benefit or covered up my faults or hidden something awkward about myself that I didn't want other people to know. I've always told the truth in every situation regarding every person I've ever known. Can you say that? In Command 10, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, nor his male servant, nor his female servant, nor his ox, nor his donkey, nor anything else that is your Neighbors, ultimately, to desire things and to try to obtain things that are the property of another is to be dissatisfied with what God has given and thus shows a lack of faith in his love. Can you say, I've never wanted what someone else had? Never wanted someone else's car, house, spouse, new gadgets, skills, or job. Can you say, I've always been completely content with what God has chosen to give me? I've never resented other people's successes, their beauty, their talents, their body shape, their intelligence, or their popularity. I've always rejoiced with others in their blessings, glad that they have them even when I don't. I also like to I like to think of this one as the HGTV commandment. That whole network is built on coveting, right? They're like, "Look at this awesome house with just a little bit of money, good old-fashioned sweat. You can make your home look like this." It's terrible. If you're like me, you are zero for ten at this point in the Ten Commandments. However, I, I know some of the more competitive among us took wins on Command 6 and 7. <laughs> Before we return to those, though, can we say that keeping the law for a day, or even for a few hours, would be near impossible, let alone keeping it for an entire lifetime, but as hard as it would be to to keep the law, even for, for a day. Jesus tells us in Matthew 5 that it is harder than we even think. He starts talking about the commands of God in verse 17 of Matthew 5, saying this, Don't think I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have come not to abolish them. But to fulfill them. And then he drops a bomb on the people in verse 20. He says, Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So in two verses, we see Jesus say, I'm going to fulfill the law, and guess what? If you are not more righteous than the most righteous people on earth, you will not get into heaven. You will not have peace with God. The Pharisees and the scribes were professional lawkeepers. I mean, they were the Michael Jordan and the LeBron James of righteousness. When Jesus says that these guys aren't getting into heaven, and you've got to be better than them to get, e- to get in, it's akin to him telling you, you have to beat Jordan at one-on-one basketball in order to get into heaven, right? It's just not happening. You can't do it. Jesus' teaching here is meant to elicit fear in the hearer. He is saying, you thought it was hard to get into God's presence, but you have no idea. It's even harder than you think. He continues his teaching in verse 21 of chapter 5. You have heard it said to our ancestors, do not murder, and whoever murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, everyone who is angry with his brother in his heart will be subject to judgment. Jesus says that sixth commandment is harder than you thought. If you've been sinfully angry with someone, you've committed murder in your heart and are guilty of breaking it. So if you had one in the, the win column, Jesus probably just messed that up for you. C- can you say, not only have I never murdered someone, I've never had hateful thoughts about another person. Jesus isn't done yet. Scroll down to uh, verse 27 of chapter 5. He says this, You've heard it said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you, everyone who looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Can you say I've never entertained thoughts about physical intimacy with someone to whom I am not married? Win or loss. Now, if going zero for ten isn't enough, if we're being honest, we all did, Jesus goes and says this in Matthew five forty eight: Be perfect, therefore... As your heavenly Father is perfect. So, unless you're just really not self aware at all, you know that you are not perfect. And that if peace with God comes by your own works or by law keeping, that you have zero chance of salvation. This is how uh, the law works as a blue light. Y'all ever seen, I watch a lot of procedurals. I know it's kind of lame, like the murder mystery thing. But they always go into the crime scene, and the, the person, if they're good, like a good murderer, not, that's not what I mean, but they're skilled at killing people and getting away with it. They, they've tried to clean up a little bit. And, and they always have this little tool, this little blue light, that they get out to search for the blood. They're like, Are there blood anywhere? And almost always they find, oh, there's traces of blood here. And, and what happens with that blue light is what was once unseeable by those in the room becomes present. Likewise, God's law reveals to us that we have the blood of rebellion on our fists, the blood of our betrayal of his word. The law shows us that we have failed to loyally love God. The law shows us not only God's beautiful heart, but our dead heart's. It makes us realize that we are lawbreakers, deserving of death, deserving of God's wrath. And it leads us to ask the question that Jesus wanted his hearers to ask in Matthew 5. How then can anyone be saved? A substitute. Galatians 3, 10-14. For all who rely on the works of the law are under curse because it is written everyone who does not continue doing everything written in the book of the law is cursed now it is clear that no one is justified before god by the law because the righteous will live by faith but the law is not based on faith instead the one who does these things will live by them christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us for it is written Everyone who is hung on a tree is cursed. The purpose was that the blessing of Abraham would come to the Gentiles by Christ Jesus so that we could receive the promised spirit through faith. Those who believe in Jesus are forgiven their sin because their sin has been paid for by Jesus. He became a curse for us. For you. Those who believe in Jesus are given the blessing of relationship with God because perfect righteousness has been given to them by Jesus. Christ has redeemed us. The righteous live by faith. He that knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. God's law shows us His holiness our unholiness and it drives us to put our faith in these sons so that we might be adopted as sons Galatians 4 4 through 5 when the fullness of time had come God sent his son born of a woman born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons he says just sons there are not sons and daughters because in the ancient world at this time, the only people that can inherit stuff are males and sons. And so when he is designated even the women among the church there as sons, what he is saying is you stand to inherit all things in Christ Jesus. You stand to be adopted into God's holy family. Dear friend, I wonder if you have received the rescue of God and been adopted into his family. You can. You need only to believe. To put your faith in Christ and take those first steps of loving obedience to his word by confessing it, being baptized, and joining with the church on her mission to make Christ known to all nations. Indeed, Romans 10.4 is a beautiful verse. It tells us that Christ is the end of the law. The end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. See, at the end of the day, the law isn't designed to show us what we must do to be saved. We can do nothing. It's designed to show us who we must trust to be saved. Brothers and sisters, Jesus is not only the perfect law keeper, but also the one we honor and worship when we obey the law by his grace. The first commandment teaches us to worship Jesus as the one and only Lord, Savior, and mediator. The second commandment teaches us that only Jesus is the perfect image of God. Our devotion to him precludes worship of any other image, any other person. In the third commandment, we learn that Jesus is the name of God, the name to which every knee will bow and every tongue confess unto the glory of the Father. In the fourth commandment, we see that Jesus is our Sabbath rest. Only in him can our restless hearts find peace and satisfaction. In the fifth commandment, we honor Jesus who restores us to the divine family as he submits himself entirely to the will of the Father. In the sixth commandment, we honor Jesus as our life, the Lord of life, the one who gave his life that we might actually live in the seventh commandment we honor jesus as our bridegroom who gave himself to cleanse us to make us his pure spotless bride without blemish and so we love him loyally as no other in the eighth commandment we honor jesus as the source of our inheritance as the one who provides the daily and deep needs of our hearts in the ninth commandment we honor jesus as god's truth the one in whom all the promises of god find their yes and amen In the 10th commandment, we honor Jesus as our complete sufficiency to meet both our external needs and the renewed desires of our hearts. In Christ, we can face all circumstances and be content with what we have, thankful for his present and future gifts. The law is all about Jesus. It's designed to drive you to Jesus and to tell you who he is and how you might worship him and enjoy him forever. How wonderful it is to trust in Jesus. How delightful it is to respond to this grace with love by honoring him with obedience to his word praise God that he supplies the perfection required for us to live happily with him and one another forever praise God that he has given us his law that we might respond to his grace with loving and affectionate obedience let's pray Heavenly Father, we thank you that even though we were so wicked, Jesus had to die for us, that at the same time, we are so loved in him that he was glad to die for us. That the joy set before him as he went to endure the cross was us. Father, we thank you that through his work, we are counted righteous. That we can enter your holy presence not as visitors or as in-laws, but as sons and daughters. Those who are worthy of inheriting all the blessings that are reserved for Christ Jesus. This gospel is scandalous. And it's beautiful. How great the mystery why you would save sinners like us. How glad we are that you did so we give you glory now, give you our worship and our affection as our true and mighty king who has laid down his life that we might have relationship with him and enter his gates with thanksgiving and praise. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.